Grasshoppers. Wizard, the great commotion, motion, motion, all the countries are is the ball a rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And with him will be Little Van Van. Van is a used up man. And with him will be Little Van. Am I on again? What, did I, was I on and then dropped off? Or uh, was I never on before this? I couldn't. So was there like an interruption or did it just not go on until now? I don't understand how this bullshit works. I was never really hearing shit. Alright, well, here's my voting ball I got today when I went to vote. When I went to my early voting place, which, lucky me, was the Barclay Center. Uh, and I was able to walk up today. I'd seen lines in previous days, but today, no line. Strolled in. Uh, got the deal. It works. It took me five minutes. Uh, and if you want to know who I'm voting for, who I voted for, I'll just say that for a long time I resisted the demand of people that I put, you know, my country first and future generations of this planet and sacrifice my lofty ideals in favor of the practical need to defeat uh, rising fascism. And, I, I admit that I've resisted for a long time, but I finally come around to the wisdom of it. I'm finally ready for her. And so today I voted for Hillary Clinton. And I believe that, uh, that her defeat has humbled her, and I think now she's ready to come and, uh, and clean up Washington. I think she needed a loss before she could really uh, understand, you know, what the stakes and, and uh, what she really wanted. You know, like she took it for she took it for granted, and now after having lost it, she'll never take it for granted again. Which is why I think she'll govern wisely and, and justly. So, and so if anyone, yeah, you can't get mad at me. I voted for Hillary. Uh, I actually wrote in everything because I did not have a very interesting contested ballot. There wasn't even anything at the local level that I could putatively influence the results of. So I went nuts. I've, I think I voted for myself for Congress. Uh, real fun was in the judges. I had to vote for all these Supreme Court justices, most of whom were running unopposed. So I got to write in some fun people there, like Judge Reinhold, Judge Doom. So, as usual, I enjoyed the experience, I enjoyed getting my ballot, I enjoyed filling in the little bubbles, and most of all, I love sliding it into the machine and going a little boop, and then getting my little guy. And hey, I even got a stress ball here. It says, don't stress, vote early. Uh, don't know why you would give that to somebody when they were already doing it, but I guess the idea is they bring it out there and maybe it gets thrown in a little waste dump and someone picks it up and remembers to do so. I don't know. Uh, so, the Supreme Court recently ruled that the that states will be able to suspend uh, the the counting of mail-in ballots after the election uh, because they will be by according to Kavanaugh prima facie uh, uh, in uh, illegitimate because they will flip the result. Of the, of the race in that state. Uh, 
that is, I think people, I mean, people have pointed this out, insane what he is saying there. There is no legal or constitutional basis for that. States have five weeks to register or to certify their results. There's nothing in any law saying anything has to be announced the night of the election. That's never been true. What he's talking about is TV. The fact that we have the media to do projections and take early returns and exit polls and make, make like journalistic guesses that we, because they're pretty you know well hedged and they wait long enough, take as gospel and then are confirmed later by the actual vote count. But if you're a cranky old man watching TV, no, you know to know who who won on the night, and that's not a standard. It's insane to expect oh to say that legitimacy of the election matters because grumpy, confused, old, senile Fox News viewers like the president uh, are too angry uh, and 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 confu- too confused by the prospect of them not announcing the the winner on the on the night of. Like, there is no way that you can argue that, that that's a reasonable standard for undermining the legitimacy of an election, unless you think the entire country, or those who count anyway, are Fox, Newing, Fox News watching demented old people. And of course, this tells us that if this does come down to a Trump versus Biden uh, style court case, that they will figure, they will find a way, no matter how ludicrous the basis, to invalidate the votes necessary and the states necessary. For Trump to win, I don't think anyone will, will should uh, have any illusions about that. There will not be some moment when uh, all those Supreme Court justices stand up and say, "No, sir, the the honor of our institution will not allow us to go along with this blatant theft." They've already laid the groundwork. They're gonna. They already. They did the thing that uh, even the guys who wrote Bush versus Gore said don't do, which is cite Bush versus Gore because it was just an extraordinary moment where their partisan leanings took over and they said, "Look, we don't even want to bother." creating sustainable legal theory around this. We just want the result. And that'll be it again. And the response, I think, from liberals to this ruling has been very interesting. And it's one of those things where you see in the small bore how they might have a point in why they act like this, but then you see how their small bore thinking inevitably sabotages them in the long run. So... The response has been, okay, now that we know that if anything is, if, it's, if anything's in the mail on election day, it's probably not going to get counted because that's now the precedent according to the Supreme Court, uh, which is legitimate. <laughs> um, that means it's your responsibility to get those votes in early. Do it now. And I understand the argument that, well, hey, nothing's going to change this. You want to be able to you know, adapt to the situation. But what you're doing when you're doing that is you're also setting up the situation perfectly after the election is stolen, where it's really all of our fault, isn't it? The same way it became Nader voters' fault that they stole the 2000 election, it'll be people's fault for not voting early enough, even though now we knew you were supposed to. The same way that the fact that uh, presidents have been elected, the last president was elected with less with negative 3 million vote lead, well, hey, you know, that's, the, uh, that's the, the system, and you need to plan for that. So, hey, they're not going to count your late votes, so you need to plan for that. It means it'll always be our fault. It'll always be the fault of the electorate. It'll never be a systemic uh, uh, rejection of democratic uh, input.
But I mean, these guys are freaking out about some sort of judicial coup. We already had one, and they blamed the third party vote for it. They blamed Susan Sarandon for it. Okay? What more do you need? Well, somebody says it's amazing how much faith uh, Libs put in a system that keeps fucking them over. The thing is, for the most articulate media libs and the people they represent demographically, it, it, the system doesn't fuck them over. The system rewards them. They do well under the system. But doing well under the system offends the liberal sensibilities and bourgeois senses of, of, of manners and values that they've absorbed to be part of the people who are doing well by this current regime. And so they need a political expression of that discomfort, which is democratic politics. But it's not designed to do anything to the system itself because it's not hurting them. It's, in fact, the thing that sustains them. They merely want an expression of uh, uh, disappointment and angst, a way to feel the discomfort uh, but well, with relieving a personal relationship to that discomfort. It's not because I am an extractor or I am a, a, in any way uh, advantaged by the system. It is that... The, the, the racism or like the constitution or or Fox News has, is, is led weight around our nation and prevents us from uh, from being fully democratic. Oh well, at least I'm aware of it and I'll vote accordingly to help other people. And so when I say that they're setting themselves up for failure down the road, not for them, continued success and and and, and uh, thriving within the system, uh, but for the people who take cues from them, the, the masses of regular voters who've internalized the logic of the liberal, uh, of, of the Democratic Party to the point of um, psychic, you know, fusion. Bernie should not join the cabinet, I'd say that. For one thing, Bernie is not an administrator anyway. I mean, at least with Elizabeth Warren, you have that pathetic thing about how she's missed plans and missed details. And, you know, maybe that's right. Put her, you know, she probably does belong, certainly not a politician. She should be some sort of uh, regulator at best. You know, it's just a cog in a machine designed to, like, look over balance sheets and find out when too, you know, there's too much uh, fraternizing going on between corporate entities. Let her do that. But Bernie's not a fucking uh, administrator. I mean, I know I was mayor of uh, Burlington but I, and 30 years ago, but I don't know if that's relevant, really. Also, he would then be part of a regime that is going to be hostile to the left on day one. And so he will only serve as a mechanism to deflect anger towards what is going to be a wildly reactionary regime that is going to declare war on the working people of this fucking country. He's going to be, he, no matter what, no, no matter how much old, yes, but look what he's, he's stacking, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the NLR, what, I don't even know what the fucking Labor Department could do, honestly. Whatever it is, whatever flurry of regulations he imposes is going to be nothing compared to the larger battle over the future legitimacy of the Democratic Party, because he's going to be part of that regime. But that's, I don't think it's going to end up mattering, because I don't think he's going to get one. Man, if Chile does uh, revive CyberSim, that'd be so funny. They're not going to revive... Uh, it'd be funny if they re recreated CyberSim 
and then Cybersyn brought Allende back to life. That'd be funny. No, probably not going to happen. What about Bukharin? Somebody's talking about Bukharin. Don't we love Bukharin, folks? I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of thinking that Bukharin might be a little underrated, honestly. Like, he probably had the right theoretical position vis-a-vis Breslatovsk and then collectivization. It's often described as like a whipsawing from the left to the right, but, um, I mean, it was a recognition of the of the of the fundamental weakness of the of the Russia as a potential place for socialism to be born because of the fundamental weakness of capitalism, which they all recognized as Marxists is necessary for the building of um, socialism, and basically just because they were in a position to win in a contest with the state because of the state's collapsing legitimacy and authority, uh, they basically made a post hoc rationalization around Trotsky's permanent revolution idea to say, we'll kickstart a revolution and that'll do it. And that meant that when it got to the point of ending the war, Bukharin said, we need, we're going to need Europe for this. We're not going to do it. So we have to turn this into a revolutionary war. Because, I mean, as soon as Brest-Litovsk happened, then... What was this? What, what did Russia do? Sat and waited with bated breath for Germany to have a revolution, and they failed to do it. What if the German communists had been able to meet up with some sort of, you know, pressure? Anyway, like it might not have worked, and it wouldn't have worked for one reason that Lenin recognized: the fucking Russian people wanted the war to end. That's why they have any legitimacy to the Bolsheviks. And what Bukharin took from that is: oh right, we're a giant nation of fucking peasants. What are we going to do? We're going to have to climb down now. And if that means implementing capitalism again, at least we're doing it. And I know it was, I mean, it was so horrifying that nobody else could even conceive of it, even though the alternative, what they ended up doing, which is the only other thing that could have happened, they were either going to climb back down and negotiate a deal with the peasants to, to compensate them for their surplus uh, in order to maintain and expand uh, industrialization and, and, and urban life. They were either going to pay them for it, which would have revolved bringing back capitalism, or they were going to take it. And Bukharin seemed to be the only person to recognize that. Except for, of course, Stalin, who didn't carry the way, he just wanted power, and Trotsky, who essentially went crazy because he couldn't accept the reality of the choice put before him. It doesn't mean the October Revolution was a mistake. They needed to, to revolt when they did. It would either have been the Bolsheviks or some sort of military rule and probably like an anti-Semitic pogrom wave, unlike anything we'd seen before, like an industrialized proto-Holocaust. Uh, no, they were right to revel when they did, and they needed to win. But every question after that is in the context of what happened then. What happens with the end of World War One? What happens with the war with Poland when that happens? What happens in Germany? And at every point, decisions have to be made by people then. Something isn't a mistake one way or the other because it's always contextualized, and it's... Uh, 
if it's a mistake or not, it boils down to like the options before you. And in 1918, 1917, there was no other option but revolution. Uh, but then options change as the conditions change. And I mean, you know, it can't, the, 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 there has to have been something wrong at some point, right, with the Soviet Union, or else it'd still be here. And if the answer to that is no, it's because, you know, they were choked by capitalism, well, I'm sorry, that means it never would have won. Like, it had to have been a combination of the decisions and actions of the, of the people who were in power in the Soviet Union, and that was in the capitalist world. It was an interplay of those two sets of decisions and actions. There had to have been mistakes on both on, on the side of the Soviets. I did read Lincoln and the Bardo. It's great. I got to read it again, actually. I feel like I get more out of it now. I own it. I should definitely, yeah, I should read it again. Thank you for the rec. Kerensky was wildly cringe. Uh, his entire approach to holding the war effort together and the provisional government together in the face of just absolute collapsing authority was just to cry. To cry all the time. Have big, emotional, weepy speeches and just hope that everybody was too, got too embarrassed for him to kick him out of power. It was, uh, yeah, wildly, very, one of the cringier characters in, uh, in 20th century history. He had to keep fighting the war because at that point the war war was the raison d'etre of the Rome, of the provisional government of of the non-communist faction in uh, in power. But when it comes to, because people should, uh, just to get back to the thing about uh, Kavanaugh and that ruling, that should tell you all you need to know about what will happen on election on the weeks after election night if there gets to be a jump ball Florida type situation. They will definitely rule for Trump no matter what. And it'll work out fine. The libs will get mad. There'll probably be another woman's march, but that'll be it. Because who's going to the streets for Joe fucking Biden? Especially if it winds its way through a court uh, system and a court... Uh, process that as it goes along cools everyone's ardor just the, the blade the hissing blade sunk into the uh, the, the water like think about what happened with uh, with the Barrett nomination and all that shit about we will burn DC to the ground if they try to fill RBG spot that was a threat but uh, it's diffused every moment after it's made that the conditions no longer obtain and if there's a process that leads you towards a conclusion and you accept broadly the legitimacy of those or of those processes even if you disagree with the outcomes you will by the time the decisive moment occurs be fully disarmed and demoralized so that's what's going to happen if that occurs 
My thing is, I don't think it's going to be that close. I have decided that you can only uh, psych yourself up too much, psych yourself out too much. Uh, because here's the thing about the polling deal and how polling is, doesn't work anymore. Polls have been basically as good as they ever were before and after 2016 and since in non-presidential races. I think that the specific confluence of insanely unlikely events that occurred in the 2016 election, which included, I think, a lot of people probably lying about whether or not they were going to vote for Trump because they were embarrassed by it, which was a real thing, I think, in 2016. The thing is, I don't think that's a thing anymore. Because everybody who did that has either gotten on the train now, and there's part of the Trump base who says, fuck you libs, and who gets off on upsetting people, or they're that cottier of uh, college-educated white suburbanites who all the data seems to indicate in the last two years, four years, have shifted dramatically to the Democrats. That Those people probably are just voting Biden now. They're not lying anymore if you call them and say they're voting for a Democrat. So I think it's going to be not close enough for a shenanigans simply because it's going to be so many states that you'd have to uh, do it in. And the configuration of powers is different in each state. The ability of these guys to coordinate is, I think, totally unestablished. And most importantly, if you're members of the Republican Party and you're not directly tied to the Trump machine, Part of you would be very relieved to see him go, I think, and to be able to deal with Biden. Fundraise off of a Democratic president, obstruct him at every level, uh, prevent them from doing anything that you don't want them to do, and hey, maybe bu bully them into doing some sort of a big uh, bipartisan, uh, uh, bipartisan uh, entitlements cut that, is, that means... Republicans are no longer the party of austerity because Democrats just did it too. Like both, they're both the knife is bloody from both of them, and, and Biden will be president when it happens. So it'll be totally, you know, uh, branded as as a at least bipartisan and maybe Democratic proposal. That's great. You're 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 fine. Risking anything for him at that point when there's no direct pressure on you. That's the important thing here. Like if it's up to a few, uh, like uh senators or something, the pressure of the Trump base over their political future will be enough probably to make them do what they're, what they're scared to do, what they're scared not to do. But when you're talking about dozens and hundreds of, 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 of judges and state legislators all over the country, none of whom individually are going to get blamed if Trump loses because the Republicans, I mean, they're, they're not going to, they're going to get mad at the Democrats for stealing it. Which, because they understand who their enemy is, unlike confused liberals. Like, when the, the election of 2000 was legitimately stolen, as, as such a thing could be, uh, and who do liberals blame, by and large, third-party voters? The, 2000, the election of 2008 was, by all measures, a relatively fair and free election in this country without any theft at all, and Republicans not only think that it was uh, illegitimate, they blame Democrats for stealing it. They're gonna. They're going to blame Democrats. They're not going to blame their legislators, especially if they legislators are able to pull off the relatively easy act of looking outraged at the outcome, but not actually revealing what power they would have had hypothetically to intervene on behalf of Trump. And everybody just—it's like he's doing a trust fall, and everybody's hands just go away. I think that makes sense given where we are.
Oh, uh, I need to commemorate this. Uh, before I went on, Chris told me, and I would not have known otherwise, that this is my hundredth Kush vlog. I have spit over a hundred hours of gibberish into the internet now. Uh, feels like time well spent, gotta say. More than most of my time on this planet has been. So that's cool. One hundo, a nice round number. Pew, pew! And if you've watched all of them, uh, wow. I hope, I hope it has uh, been in some way helpful. They're not all winners, though, of course. So we're uh, going to do an election night show from our office where I've recorded with Chris some of the vlogs here next Tuesday. It's going to be uh, at a minimum, I believe, me and Felix, uh, Chris, and I think uh, Virgil in the studio, and uh, special hey. guests aplenty. I think Amber's going to call in, uh, and we'll have... Other people, Adam Friedland might be in the building. It's going to be fun. And it's going to be interesting, too, because we're not going to be able to organize it around a climactic moment of uh, truth. Because we'll likely end without knowing. Although I do think that Florida will be the bellwether. Uh, because Florida vote t uh, counts their mail-in ballots ahead of time which means that they will have earlier, faster, and more complete results than a lot of the other swing states. And that is the state where it's sort of a microcosm for the polling in general. It's shown a solid, consistent uh, Biden lead, but at the same time, you look at it and you think, it's Florida, though. And then you'll get some, you'll get a few polls where, oh, what? It's like within a point or something. Oh, my God. And then you got the fact that, you know, They've got their felony disenfranchisement still in effect, and they're uh, going to challenge a ton of uh, write-in or mail-in ballots. But, but so I think if it looks like Florida, certainly Florida is uh, is called for Biden on election night. I think you might be able to just uh, lean back if you're if you care about the result. Uh, if you're terrified of a Biden of a of a Trump term and find solace in the idea of of a Biden presidency, uh, I, I guess I envy you that a little bit because for me, I just I guess I do want Biden to win simply from aesthetically. I'm sick of talking about Trump. I feel like there's not really much more going on there. His ability to uh, accelerate us towards something, I think, is pretty much his useful ability to accelerate us towards anything has been. Uh, uh, kind of spent. I feel like he is, I also, I just kind of feel like he isn't the man for the moment. I feel like to preside over the kind of sustained collapse and then like reorder of, this, of, uh, of the economy, like away from um, small business ownership uh, and employment by uh, an employer towards 
this entirely decentralized uh, gig economy where everybody is some is is working for some you know a company that fronts them uh, capital in ex- which nobody will have except for a few of the big uh, corporations in exchange uh, for them to basically turn into digital sharecroppers and that's gonna suck and you don't want a guy in there banging the dinner bell and screaming all day and trying to edge people towards political conflict you want a guy up there just with a rictus of, of grief just saying I'm sorry I know I know it's terrible isn't it I know I know Oh, I, I feel the pain. We weep together as a nation. That's, to me, that's what uh, the system wants. Trump will not be prosecuted. They're not going to start, they're not going to break the understanding, the unwritten rule, that nobody is responsible for anything they do in power. Because as soon as that's broken, then all of a sudden, uh, the matrix of decision-making of our leadership would be destroyed. Like, uh, impunity is built into being in power. It is an assumed condition that undergirds all of the other decisions you make. Because the question of, what if people find out? What if this... It can go to the level of, oh, I might get in trouble. Oh, I might lose my job. Oh, I... You know. But it'll never get to the level of, oh, I might go to jail for this. They don't think that way. Thinking that way would, could, specific, could actually change the way they govern. They don't want to do that. They don't want to tie their own hands. So, nope. But if they call Florida, I think, uh, I think Biden's going to win the whole shebang, in, like, as in every state where it looks close. Like, if, they win, if Florida's called on, on election night, he might win Texas. He'll probably, I would say, if Florida goes to him, he will definitely win Georgia, probably, uh, definitely win Arizona, rather, probably win Georgia, and is 50-50 for Texas. Uh, and that means he definitely wins North Carolina. And with goes without saying, he gets back the entire uh, uh, Great Lakes firewall. And I think that would be around 400 electoral votes. He would win Iowa in that context, I think, too. In fact, I think he might win Iowa anyway. The one that I think it would be kind of funny if he didn't win is Ohio, which I honestly think see, see, could see happening. I could see him win Florida... Georgia, Texas, and Arizona, and lose Ohio, just because of the way the demographics have changed there in the last uh, eight years. Uh. But he could, I think he'll win Iowa either way. Uh, Iowa, Iowa is a state that has been hit hard by specific Trump policies uh, in terms of the trade war that has uh, hurt the price of corn very badly. Uh, and then, of course, the horrible response to the tornado apocalypse that they had. He's, uh, he's taking a, a actual hit from that. Uh, and Jody Ernst also looks very bad there. But, of course, if uh, I would say this. If Florida is too close to call at the end of the night, I think you're still looking at a Biden victory probably. But if it's called for Trump... Now you got to raise some eyebrows and think these things might not might be close enough that a tip ball situation could emerge. In which case, referee Tim Donahue is going to come out, and I think we all know what the outcome is going to be at that point. And I hope you've already placed your bets beforehand. Apparently, uh, Biden's looking bad in Nevada, and it'd be very interesting if he won Arizona and lost Nevada. 
apparently the uh, the early voting situation in uh, Nevada isn't great for Democrats. They're not getting back the kind of numbers that they were looking like they needed to to match the 2016 results. So who knows? Shift uh, Latino shift towards Trump seems real, which of course that makes people apoplectic because what about the cages? What about the the babies at the border? We're Americans. The people you're talking about are Americans, and that means that even though they're Latino, they're still Americans, which means that their understanding of themselves in a race is very much contingent on a million other ways that they understand themselves. And in America, there's a huge cultural vortex towards being a guy who doesn't give a fuck about anybody else, because that's the only way that you can fucking live in this fucking country without going insane. And so it's a very persuasive political valence, and Trump embodies it for people of all of all religions and races and all this stuff the difference is the way you experience race in this country is going to color how you take trump in like he's also gaining among apparently black men not as much nearly as with uh latinos but still a shift and why because because the appeal is is uh, transcendent of race and the way you experience race can be very much put on a scale with a bunch of other identities and found to be, by you, less persuasive to direct you towards something, which is why all the standpoint epistemology that undergirds so much identity politics and, uh, like, theories of, um, like, uh, uh, both understanding political reality and formulating praxis uh, is hollow and, and insane because there is no totalized racial experience that overgirds every other part of a person's identity and decision-making matrix. And so you cannot use that to determine the rightness or wrongness of someone's fucking political beliefs. Because people specifically talk about, like, Trump's horrible stuff with immigration. Uh, During the last debate, Trump kept saying about immigration to Biden, who built the cages? And a lot of people were baffled by that because they said, you can't say that when you're the one using them. And no, you can, depending on what premise you're operating from. The liberal premise is that this is a horrible thing, that these are monstrous violations of human rights and that we need to stop them. The Trump undergirding argument that a lot of people agree with, regardless of race, is, look, we got to have immigration laws. That means you're going to have cages because people are going to come and you can't trust them. So what are you going to do with them? You can't trust them, so you have to keep them in jail. And how do I know that that's true? Because even Obama, Mr. Whiny Whiny, heart, heartbreak, makes crying about uh, immigrants, had them and built them and put people in them. Because we're going to put people in them. And the question is, do we accept that it's necessary or do we pretend to be sad about it because we're literally just virtue signaling to each other? And that's a persuasive argument to people. And there's no challenge to it from the liberals. There's only a further uh, fake orchestra of, of, of pathos that, if you think about it and think, you guys built the cages, you put kids in cages too, makes you realize, well, this is bullshit. He doesn't really care. He's not really sad about this. You guys don't aren't really worried. You're just using it as a weapon of convenience against Republicans because that's all that actually matters. And that's... And therefore, there's no content to any of our political ideology, and it's merely a war of, of, of sides and position. And the thing is, is that's true, because they are not, they are not on other sides. It's, it's an inner, 
it's it's an internal conflict within capitalism about like the best way to uh, like the the way the degree to which you have to soothe your conscience in the pursuit of the total market domination of the planet, and that's I mean that's another expression that's the way that it's perceived of politically, but that's an expression of a greater tactical question of how much can we squeeze the peasants before this thing breaks down and we don't have any system at all. We get that thing that Marx called the common ruin of the contending classes. And that's the basic tactical or strategic argument between liberals and, and conservatives about these kind of things. But uh, it's expressed politically as a, a moral question. But it's all just imperial management. We, 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 uh, the border regime is a part of that. It's not going anywhere. Neither party is interested in get, having it go anywhere. There's no policies that are going to be pursued that are going to make it go nowhere. That means you need things like interdiction, and you're going to have to house people, especially if things keep getting bad in other parts of the world. Those parts that are convenient for us, closer to the equator, more likely to get hot and uninhabitable and flooded than us. And... They're going to have to go somewhere. They cannot come here under the current regime. They're not assimilatable. Even the liberals understand that because what did Obama do? He it deported a bunch of people and he built the fucking cages. And that's what Biden will do. And they know that. And there's no liberal counterargument to it. Except to further undermine your moral, quote, moral case, which you think is so unimpeachable, by highlighting its essential hypocrisy and mercenary uh, use. Because the greater bet that the conservatives are making is that uh, are the ones in power, like the ones directing, pressing like the accelerator button on here, the ones who say no, like the Mitch McConnell types, brick on the accelerator, are doing so because they think there is nothing else to be gained by prolonging the fiction of democracy in the face of falling profits and rising uh, ecological and uh, uh, instability. We, there's enough momentum in the system for us to loot it while it's while it is still extant, and be confident that we can, uh, uh, if we have to, uh, negotiate exits per individually and privately. And the thing is, they might not be wrong. I think they're really, yeah, I don't know, I got to think about it more, I don't, I can't. I think that, like any, in America anyway, where we're like the reserve currency and we're in charge of like the institutions of global finance and we're, we're, the, like the, ref, we're the referees of the global financial system, there needs to, I think that, there, that one element of um, uh, like a successful left, um, 
uh, immigration policy would be a recognition that a big part of it is going to have to be helping people uh, stay in the countries that they live in. Because that's where people want to live. And the reason they can't live there is because their countries are largely being destroyed on purpose by us. And the thing about that, though, is that, you know, you, it's a frame that is xenophobic in a way. Like, this keeps them out of here. But in practice, it's actually the hardest thing you can do, which is get people, if it would work, is to get people on board with spending money outside of the United States, which they hate doing. They hate it. There's a reason that people think that uh, a foreign aid is like 25% of the federal budget when it's like less than one. Because they're just always imagining some foreigner with a big sack of rice living it up on their dime. And, but on merits, that's a thing that has to happen. Like, the world has to be fucking habitable for people where they, where they live now. Because there's no situation where the entire po world population becoming liquid and just moving across its surface is going to facilitate um, anything other than a techno-regime of, like, essentially uh, uh, mass incarceration beyond anything we could imagine. Just large-scale human containment. Because people in flux like that are not able to resist. They don't have anything. They don't even have like the, the confidence of, of like ma and of mastery of like a, a geographic area they're familiar with, or access to community resources. They're at the mercy of just the global tide pole of capital, and and the the, the um, and at the mercy of its technological expressions. At that point, yeah, like the the need for enough, of, uh, the need for those people to actually be like inputs into the economic system is going to be basically not nil. They will be uh, disposable. They will be a Begman's, a Gambin's uh, homo saucer. And the funny thing is, is Matt Iglesias with his 100 billion, with his billion Americans book, he even says, he just coughs his mouth and says, uh, of course, we'll, uh, we'll have to choose the type of immigrants we accept. Oh, it's like, I'm sorry, isn't he supposed to be uh, advancing this left-wing case for open borders and sneak it underneath the, 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 the sleeping uh, maw of uh, right-wing reaction by, by camouflaging it with this nice nationalism that they love so much? He still concedes... A regime where, yeah, no, we're going to get uh, the people who we, who we need to, like, run our fucking server farms. And then you're still going to have to have massive, uh, 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 a massive system of border enforcement if you're doing that. So it's, it's not even the thing that his uh, pathetic uh, uh, bad faith defenders claim, this brilliant attempt to, to, to uh, rebrand leftism. It's it's just more neoliberal bullshit, but but it, it's it's his fetish for a neoliberal uh, 
reimagining of the city. Like he, the reason I think that he is so enthusiastic about markets is because he genuinely has absorbed the idea that everything good about uh, like social life is to be found in the uh, gentrified American urban center. And that therefore we need to facilitate that that metastasis of that into like the uh, the mean experience of being an American. That that's his that's his conception. And the reason he thinks that is because that is the place for the Nietzsche's last man to live because it gives you the sociality. It gives you all of the uh, the most uh, superficial uh, uh, benefits of living socially. Access to different foods and, and entertainment options and things like that. Uh, but with none of the spiritual uh, connection and like community formation that comes around different social, like uh, dense social con- uh, relationships. And he needs that to be the thing so that because he is trying to imagine what policy will benefit the most people and he has to imagine that people are him because we all imagine in some way that you know everyone is like us in a fundamental way it's just we hope to get deeper at the root of it than him he is only able he's so shallow he can only get to no everybody should have this coffee shops and thai restaurants and stuff this uh, this thing where I get a, a ver- of, uh, uh, as much of a varied experience in the most superficial way uh, to to uh, essentially imitate like a, a social existence while as I'm basically on my phone. To him, that's Valhalla, that's utopia, and so he wants everyone to live there, and he imagines that the free marketization of uh, urban life will will bring that about, that it's it's the restrictions on, on, on development that make that the case, which is very much backwards. The, the, the restrictions are imposed by a governing ideology that is powered by a governing um, mode of production and, you know, political economy. And that is what dictates the, these regimes. So, sorry, buddy, you gotta, you gotta get down to the studs to make any of this stuff accessible, because... I think that that kind of dense urban lifestyle is, 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 I've lived it. I think that it has benefits. And I think that in a less alienated world, it can be the basis for real social unity or social cohesion. But uh, it's certainly not something that is a, a um, panacea for any of the current horrors of life in this country. And also, and I mean, the big thing to say fuck you about Iglesias is, is that you can see the outlines of a coming st- ramping up of war with China as an option uh, coming down the pipe. Like, Raytheon is putting out, like, yellow journalism now in order to get people behind this idea that we have to confront China. Uh, we, like, the, the, our, our, our economy and our political order are going to push us towards conflict with China. Uh, I know that, you know, there's that full war, full-fledged war would be bad for both of us, and so that kind of thing can prevent a, a, an escalation. But some degree of, like, rising tensions, 
and military spending to go with it and military activity to you know keep the blood flowing through the American hegemony, hegemonic circulatory system uh, is going to have to get expended. And anybody who wants to help that along uh, can uh, stonk my donk. Fuck off. What? You, you're going to fucking help us uh, send the Sixth Fleet to, to carpet bomb the fucking uh, uh, South China Sea and, and start a shooting war over uh, uh, Koyan and Matsu uh, so that you can get a Starbucks on every fucking corner in Iowa, you fucking asshole? But politically, like, Trump blames China for the virus. And I got to tell you guys, Biden's going to blame China, too, once he's in power. Sure, there's going to be Trump, but it's going to keep being bad. And that's going to work less. And China's still going to be there. And the incentives are going to be there on both parties to ramp it up as a way to express off the real horror of how badly this was fucked. How badly we've been failed by the political leadership. They have to put it off on somebody, and the other party is not ever going to be enough. China is going to be more and more the bipartisan so, uh, source of the, the, the place. Like, look at the guys who people talk about as the successors to Trump. They're like guys like Hawley and Cotton. They're not doubling down on his fake uh, peacenik shit from 2016. They're, ramp, they're fucking uh, ramping up against China, too, as is Trump. There, like any kind of non-interventionist paleoconservative strain in Trumpism is getting squashed out by COVID and by the by the the the, the psychic demand to find a, a suppository for our anger. And it's and it's uh, China, China, China. So I think the fifth column of neocons colonizing the DN, the Democrats is a threat. I mean, the thing about that is stuff like, you know, uh, guys like Bill Kristol and from and the Lincoln Project, it's not that they are doing some sort of stealth takeover situation. It's that they are being absorbed. It's 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 not an in, in invasion. It's it's a merger. Uh, on on the uh, on the fully conscious terms of both parties. Cuz the Democratic uh, plan has been since 2016 to turn the Republican Party into a party of purely white grievance and pull off every other sector of the ruling class away from other than like the, the Buddy Garrity, beautiful boater type small bourgeois. Everybody with any real connection to the global financial order, the people who used to be the Rockefeller wing of the party, and absorb them into the Democrats and make the Republicans the white grievance party of the, of the downwardly mobile middle, uh, uh, lower, uh, upper, uh, like upper class and middle class. And that means absorbing all these people. And so the project now is, is happening. It's been accelerated. Trump winning was actually the best thing that could have happened for that project. And the reason this is happening, it, more than anything, is, is that so the... the uh, it's not true to say that in the two-party system we have in this country that the two parties aren't actually representing like different agendas. They are. They aren't. They aren't literally the same in their expression of in the expression of their political philosophy because there is actual conflict there uh, at the level of you know political economy and things like tax distribution and regulation, you know, government structures, actual differences. That is true. Uh, 
but those differences uh, are expressed through a political class that differs basically in its relationship to global capitalism. You have people connected to finance, old money, the people who've been rich in America the longest, and then the, the, as the country filled in, the regional powers that grew up, the small producers, uh, small manufacturers, and small uh, like landholders and bourgeois. They grew up, even though, of course, their relationship to global capital is very real, it is not perceived as such. They, they perceive, in fact, global capital as a, conf, as a, as a uh, competitor for them because, in some ways, it is. The system, as it equalizes, it sacrifices some interests for others in order to maintain homeostasis. Like, tariff regimes harm some it, uh, uh, internal companies or internal markets or internal... Uh, 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 re- oh, fuck internal resources or whatever. Industries, that's the word I'm looking for. Industries, like some industries are harmed by a tariff regime, others benefit. Their connection to the halls of power and their, you know, the crucialness, the influence they have within the political system kind of dictates which is which. And so there is a real conflict there. Uh, And that has been, for most of American history, the contours of the actual battle between the two political parties. The New Deal changed that. The New Deal brought the working class to the table as a third point away from small producers and small bourgeois and uh, uh, international capital. The working class as such gained a seat at the table through their mass agitation around the Great Depression. They essentially, they, they, they barged into the, the top levels of influence within the Democratic Party because they were able to assert their independent uh, political agenda in the face of the crisis of the Great Depression. That persisted for a while after the uh, Wagner Act, the NLRB put, gave, gave uh, and, and at political level, the fusion of the top levels of the biggest politi- uh, labor unions with the Democratic Party happened at the same time. Those relationships persisted until the 70s when the crisis of productivity, the, cri- the uh, crisis of energy, uh, led the political order to, at that point, uh, sever the last connections between a, at that point, moribund labor movement that had lost its uh, vitality, lost its ability to assert itself as a uh, as a equal partner in this in the in these political negotiations between these centers of political power, uh, and crawled off and f- died under the porch. And it, we returned, and since the 19th, since Reagan, basically. We have returned to the political order being a battle between finance capitalism and local, uh, uh, local uh, small bourgeois. Now, the thing about that is, is that even though this is the conflict, it's not expressed evenly through the parties. There are parts of both that support each, but the acceleration of the culture war and the way the culture war uh, beliefs are conditioned more than anything by social class and specifically uh, uh, college education. We're getting to a point where the, 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 the voters are polarizing around, once again, uh, the small bourgeois and global capital. And because now the issue are whether we went to college or not, and the, the party of global capital is the party of, like, college, that becomes the party of, uh, you know, 
minorities uh, and uh, or like, like some minorities, black, black people more than Hispanics because that's a more fluid racial category, uh, and college-educated whites against this lump party of, you know, red-pilled, uh, I would say red-pilled minority males and then white, white uh, non-college-educated whites uh, both above and beyond, uh, below like the poverty line. Or, or like the hundred thousand dollar line, and this is a part of that process—the assimilation of the old, uh, the the last uh, uh, vestige of the old Eastern elite, which formed the globalist uh, uh, part of the Republican Party, because the f- war that started in the '60s between Goldwater and Rockefeller and which was won by Reagan in 1980 for the side of the small producers and for the side of cultural reaction. Uh, It still has taken decades since then for the last tendrils to break away, and Trump has accelerated that process. And now we are reaching a point where there will be less and less of a, uh, or at least if the Democrats get what they want, there will be less and less of a Republican... uh, like uh, global capital connected uh, uh, party wing. It'll be just pure like Robert Welch stuff. And then, you know, uh, pissed off guys in camo hats and stuff. And then everybody else will be in the Democrats. That's how they think that they can, even without offering any alternative to austerity, nightmare, hell world, will be able to hold off, hold on to power because they will have the demographics in their favor in that younger and younger people, not only are they more diverse, they also hold cultural issues closer to their hearts because they've grown up with no other issues to talk about or consider to be on the table, really. All right, I got to get going here. Uh... Who's Julius Crean? Leave me alone. Everyone's yelling at me. (coughs) I'm going off here now. Bye-bye.